Hello and welcome back to Making Web Apps Badly. This is David, your host, and today we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about what is a web application, but we're mostly going to talk about why front-end frameworks are evil. <laughs> um, so front-end frameworks, what I'm talking about are things like React, Vue.js, uh, Svelte, um, and uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of frameworks like that, Knockout.js, um, there's Riot.js, there's a lot of, a lot of other ones, Cycle.js, um, a lot of different things that allow you to react, reactively update the page um, based on the data. And a lot of them um, handle rendering for you. And the reason is, the reason they do this, um, as far as I understand it, uh, and I've, I've been working on web applications for the past 10 years, um, the reason they do this, as far as I understand it, is they want to keep all of the data and all of the components organized and updated and reusable while also um, having the user have a really um, nice experience using the application. So when you load the application, uh, you know, it might take a little bit of time to load on the first, on the initial load. But after that, you're able to um, have everything loaded. You know, everything's already preloaded. So now when you go from page to page, it's instant. When you open up a dialogue, it's pretty much instant. And all the data is right there, right? So the data is on the front end, uh, passed into all of these templates you're rendering right there. And so everything's kind of like connected and easy to work with, right? Because the data is right next to the, to the, the view components, right? The view library. So you can just kind of drop it into the view library, uh, have that render, and then, you know, modify the data right there, send it back to the back end, have it save, um, and then someone else can get a live update, you know, if you're using some kind of real-time database. Uh, even though they're on a different page, viewing a different component, as long as they're, you know, using the same data source, that data source can push out the new changes and their view can get updated. So this removes a lot of problems for the developers. Um, the main one, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that it, the main problem that it addresses for developers is um, having everything right there, right? Uh, you have the view layer, you have the controller logic, you have the, the template logic, you know, you can even do some calculations on the front end, <coughs> and you have the data all right there, right? Um, whereas with, you know, a multi-page app, you know, a, a traditional, more traditional, old-school server-rendered app, you have uh, templates that are on the back end, controllers that are on the back end, and you have to learn this back-end programming language and learn how to work with the data there, um, as well as um, working with the front end and adding additional controller logic and functionality there. Um, and I think once the focus for you know developers and applications kind of shifted from you know let's make really powerful 
uh, new types of, you know, um, applications, you know, like, like, like Google, which is a massively scaled, you know, uh, crawler of the entire internet and, you know, Facebook, which is like this gigantic spider of human connection. You know, once we, we started moving a little bit away, I think from um, these kind of big computationally heavy ideas uh, to, more, uh, to a more nuanced approach um, or nuanced appreciation of like, you know, smaller types of applications that look nice, that respond easily, that, you know, do common tasks, right? Um, you know, like you might have a CRM, or you might have a, a task list manager, you might have a, even like an email reader, right? These things don't need to be massively scalable out of the box. Um, but they can have a full business behind them, and a growing business, like a really fast growing business. Um, but you don't need to do a lot of... Uh, computationally heavy things on the back end. Now that might be a false dichotomy because I'm sure there are still a lot of companies that are working on these back end systems that also want to focus on, you know, making the front end look really good. Uh, like for example, uh, Stripe is a great example. They have a, a beautiful front end, um, but they're also doing a lot of work on the back end. Uh, Netflix is a great example, right? Their engineering team, uh, and you know, they have blog posts about the front end beautiful, beautiful uh, setup that they have. And, you know, they're still, they're doing a lot of stuff on the back end too, to deliver um, a massive amount of video, uh, you know, in a, in a massively scalable, distributed and efficient way. Um, but I do think a lot of smaller companies and smaller startups are working on smaller applications that are mostly differentiated by their interface and by the way you use them and the interactive, you know, way you can, uh, just the interactions that they have that you can, um, you know, add a to-do with a shortcut instead of, you know, having to press a button or being able to, you know, quickly um, add a bunch of items at, all at once. Or, you know, Trello, right, for example, which, isn't that much different than just having a multiple to-do list, right? But they totally changed the game by just creating a new interface for that, um, which was not only intuitive, but incredibly flexible to use um, and relies you know, a, a lot on drag and drop, which is not something that a lot of other applications before that uh, heavily relied on as, the, as like a main interface component. Um, so a lot of, uh, I think a lot of work goes into making that front end intuitive and easy to use and, and novel because a lot of the time if you can show that in your marketing video or, you know, you're trying to compete with a thousand other CRMs or, you know, a hundred other, you know, popular email clients, that's going to be the differentiating factor. Um, so with, with, that, with that out of the way, uh, I guess my main idea is that, that that's, that's why uh, a lot of teams, a lot of engineering teams want to focus on the front end and having a front end framework. 
Uh, it's because that's a differentiator for their product. Uh, it's easier for them to use because uh, the data is all right there. Um, and they can, you know, just have one place where, where they're, you know, manipulating the data. Um, although, you know, of course, you still have to validate it on the back end, you know, so there's still a little bit of work to do on the back end. But a lot of engineering has, has moved to the front end. Um, and I think it's mostly just to keep things in one place, but I think it's also a good selling point um, and differentiator, like I was mentioning. Um, and I think there's some other sneakier reasons, uh, which if I remember them, I'll go into later. Um, okay, so we have this massive shift to the front end, and uh, we're, we're re-implementing a lot of things that you know previous generations of frameworks had already implemented, right? So a lot of back-end frameworks, they already kind of had state management handled, right? <laughs> you have uh, a thousand different kinds of databases, um, ways of validating schemas, ways of automatically updating data, ways of automatically creating forms from your schemas. Um, so there's a lot of work that already went into that, <clears throat> but now we're, re we're duplicating that work on the front end. Um, so, you know, you get all of these kinds of, you know, unique ideas uh, on the front end, but they're really not that unique because they, they came before with the back end frameworks. Now, again, the benefit is that now when a user is using your application, it feels more native. It feels like they're doing something uh, instantly that, you know, they don't have to uh, impatiently wait for an operation to finish they can click a button it opens the modal they can click they can click around edit it you know click the save button or maybe not even maybe it just auto saves for them um, and then it, you know it's just like instant right everything's instant you go to netflix.com you see a video that you want to see want to watch you click on it instantly you're brought into viewing the video um, it's that kind of like instant gratification that I think is so important when you're, when you're competing on a global scale uh, these days. Because um, people, I think, can be impatient. Um, okay, so I think that's, uh, that's interesting, right? But of course now there's a lot of uh, complexity on the front end. Um, because we've brought all these concepts to the front end. Also, here's a big thing. We're not only re-implementing what we've already implement implemented previously with backend frameworks, but we're also re-implementing uh, native browser features. So things like the back button might not work sometimes, or it might not work how people expect it to. And things like page refreshes might not do exactly what you thought they were going to do as a user. Um, and front-end validation has to also be backed up by back-end validation, right? So you're implementing something twice there, right? Because you can't trust user input that's just passed into the back-end. No matter if you have front-end validation or not, you still have to check it 
on the back end too. Um, we're recreating schemas, right, to validate the data, but also just to keep everything organized um, on the front end. And then you also have to have a schema on the back end too, right? To, um, so when you're inserting it into your database, the schema just, you know, fits and you know what, what shape the data should have. Um, you know, and of course it makes migrations a lot easier too. So um, that's another thing you're implementing twice. Then uh, just routing, right? <laughs> so you have routing, this problem that has been solved by thousands, if not millions of backend frameworks. Maybe not million. I don't know if there's a million backend frameworks, but um, you know, thousands of backend frameworks have implemented routing, and now you have to do that on the front end too. And then if you are doing the routing on the front end, uh, you know, Google will actually, I think, crawl the page for you. I, I think it's smart enough now that they said, you know, Google, the, the SEO bot, the search, the search engine crawler will, um, will crawl your page even if you're using a pure JavaScript uh, stack, right? So if you're using a framework like React or Angular or Vue, the Google bot is gonna be smart enough to crawl your page. Um, however, uh, you know, there are a lot of other search engines out there and there's a lot of other ways of discovering content other than just through Google, right? So just because Google is maybe the first way a lot of people think of for discovering content on the internet, in actual fact, I think, you know, m probably more than 30% of the average person's discoveries online are through social avenues or, you know, email, which I think is also a social avenue, but like social news sites, uh, social networks. Um, and then there's like online publications and then there's rabbit holes, right? There's the time when you search for something, you went into a publication and then you clicked around a little bit, explored the publication because it seems like a high quality publication or it just has interesting articles. And so you click around a few times and then you get to something new from there. Um, or there's times when you, f you figure out something unexpected, right? You're researching something and then you come across a totally different technology that you didn't even realize existed or a totally different idea that you didn't even know existed and then you start exploring that. Um, so I think there are a lot of ways to discover content these days. Um, and it's not just through Google. And a lot of these ways, I'm not sure that they do know how to uh, render uh, JavaScript. So if you have a web application that has content in it, user-created user content, and you want to be able to share that content all over the internet and with a lot of different people, um, it might be important for you to do some kind of server-side rendering, which means that <laughs> those front-end routes that you're just implementing on the front end also have to be implemented on the back end. Um, which means that you're, again, re-implementing a native kind of browser feature, right? The whole get and response cycle, you know, submit a get request, get a, get a page response filled with HTML. You're re-implementing that on the front end and then 
you're kind of mocking it out on the back end and saying, actually, we still want this to work on the, on the back end. So you should get the regularly rendered web application, the same one you're getting on the front end on the back end too. And that can require a decent amount of extra work. Um, <clears throat> then there's another thing, which is a really big deal, which is uh, code splitting and the time to first load. Now, this is something that Google's working on uh, with things like their, um, their framework for news publications. Um, I forget what it's called, but there is a, uh, I know, it's kind of absurd that I forget what it's called, but um, it's, um, they're kind of forcing it down the throats of publishers right now and, and making it so that publishers who enable this uh, framework, which you know, has very minimal JavaScript and strict policies around what kind of you know, JavaScript and content can load and, and when it's being loaded, um, <coughs> those, those sites will be faster and they're gonna rank higher in Google. And they're also gonna be featured more prominently in the Google uh, search results. Um, whew, can't believe I forget what that framework's called. But anyways, uh, that is um, an example of something that Google's doing to try to cut down on the initial load time of a lot of sites because they've realized that if a user goes to a publication or they go to a content site and that site takes you know three or four seconds to load, that's not just a reflection on the site. That's, that's actually a little bit of a reflection on Google for um, you know, their total grade, right? So like if a user is trying to find information, they're not always just trying to find an exact piece of information. You know, if they're just looking for, you know, like a, a chicken broth rep recipe, they're, they're not always just, you know, looking for, you know, the best recipe. Although of course, you know, uh, if you ask most people, you know, of course they would want as good of a recipe as they could get probably but they're also looking for that information quickly, right? So there's a ton of copycat sites around lightweight, easy to get content, right? Like, like recipes, right? Things that people are willing to share and which are relatively similar to each other. And you might not have a ton of differentiation, right? If you search for, um, you know, a Caesar salad recipe, you could imagine that maybe the, the top four links would all be from different sites and they would all have a rating of five out of five and they would all be relatively as tasty. But at that point, what you have is you have um, five sites that are pretty much copies of each other, even though they're not, right? I mean, the, the content's laid out differently. Um, they're gonna describe the recipes differently. They're gonna get to the point differently. They're gonna have different pictures. But all in all, you know, it might be a little bit difficult to differentiate them objectively. But from the user's perspective, they don't want the one that's gonna take five seconds to load, um, especially if they're on a mobile phone, because five, five seconds to load on a desktop computer is 10 seconds to load on a mobile phone. And all you're doing when you're first searching for that recipe is trying to evaluate it, right? You just wanna know, does this look decent? Is it gonna be in contention for the recipe that I wanna make? You're not, you're not committed to it yet. You're not willing to wait those, those 10 seconds right away. 
So you want to load it instantly, right? In under a second. You want to look at it, scan it over, see if it's good. And then at that point, you can kind of settle down. You know, once you know it's the one you're going to go with. But if it's not the one you're going to go with, you're going to press the back button. Expect that to load instantly too. And then go to the next one. Evaluate. <coughs> Decide if it's good or not. If not, go back again. And so you need those interactions to take, um, you know, a second or at least under two seconds. So Google, of course, is factoring this in um, and trying to cut down on that initial load time. Now, so for web applications, especially so content web applications, this means that <coughs> your time to load matters for the first load. Right? It's not only subsequent loads that matter. Because if someone's searching for their chicken broth web re recipe and they go to your web application and it's the first time that they've loaded it because they're coming in through Google, right? They expect that site to load in under two seconds and they don't care about your JavaScript framework or how optimally designed the rest of your web application is. They care about that single page and that single piece of content. They don't care about any JavaScript you're loading, in fact. They don't care about all the other templates on your site, all the other components that you're loading behind the scenes. All they care about is what does the chicken broth taste like? What are the ingredients? Is it similar to their grandmother's recipe that you know she made back in the day? That's all they care about. <laughs> so when your web application is loading two megabytes or three megabytes or five megabytes of JavaScript in the background, and, and then on top of that images, um, we're talking about you know something that's going to take around 10 seconds to load, especially on a 3G mobile network, which is just completely unacceptable. You're going to rank lower in Google. You're going to uh, piss off, piss people off, right? You're not going to get a lot of fans. People are going to pretty much immediately try to load your website, see a white page for, for a few seconds, and then click the back button. So now all of a sudden, on these magical front-end frameworks, you have to have code splitting, and you have to have server-side rendering. And code splitting means that you're only loading the necessary components for that page on the page. And then to combine that with server-side rendering is a little bit difficult at this point. I'm sure someone's going to solve it. And I know there are already um, attempts to solve this with, with frameworks like Next.js, which I think is an excellent framework. Um, and uh, I think Gatsby does it too, right? Gatsby, the React CMS. I think they might do it too. And then I think Webpack, you know, supports it kind of out of the out of the box. But of course, you're, I don't know. I shouldn't say out of the box because it requires a significant amount of uh, configuration. But I think they do support it to some extent. You know, where as long as you get the exact right uh, magical notation, you're going to be all set, right? Um, so, so you have this uh, idea again that once again you're re-implementing what has already been implemented uh, and you're doing it twice, right? So now you have to have it on the server side, right? The code splitting on the server side. But then you also have to have the code splitting on the client side, right? So on the client side, you're conditionally importing and loading libraries and all of this uh, stuff that's being re-implemented right now 
It takes a lot of work, a lot of engineering work, and it's constantly being updated and improved. So for the people who are following along with the latest best practices of creating a single page app or a single page content site or a single page you know, user submitted content site, um, <coughs> they have to stay up to date with the latest and they are constantly barraged <laughs> by all kinds of new technologies, new best practices, new ways of doing things, new updates, forks of old you know, projects that perform better, uh, and keeping it all straight and maintaining it all and keeping it all together can be a her Herculean uh, effort. Um, so uh, that is to say that at the end of the day, what I think is that um, it's not worth it. <laughs> Uh, just to state it simply, I think that front-end web frameworks, web app frameworks, like React, like Vue, uh, like um, Svelte, uh, like Angular, they are simply premature optimization for most small startups. Now, I don't think this is true for a few different kinds of apps. But I think if you're building these kinds of apps, you definitely have venture funding. <laughs> you definitely have a decent sized team or you're bootstrapped incredibly ambitious and have you know, a decent amount of time to invest in building an, such an ambitious project. But I think these apps include, <clears throat> you know, if you're building the next Instagram or the next Twitter or the next Facebook, you're building some kind of massively scalable social network that needs real-time communication and you're, you're working you know ideally I think with a large team right at least at least seven to ten engineers if not double that <coughs> and you're building out you know um, multiple features at the same time right so again you know if you're building out you know even a, a Spotify right which has a lot of different pages, a lot of different components, a lot of different things that just work. <coughs> um, and a lot of backend technologies that need to be synced to and synced up with. I think it makes sense to use a front-end framework because at some point, <coughs> uh, a team of developers doesn't, is, they aren't um, able to uh, handle a lot of interconnected engineering uh, tasks because the overhead becomes too much. So what you wanna do is try to split those up into silos that can communicate to each other through APIs. Um, and that's what Amazon did with <coughs> their web services. And that's you know, how S3 and EC2 you know, and all of their web services came about is you know, they were talking with each other internally before that through APIs. And that's the same way Spotify handles it, where they <coughs> split up their engineering team into a different kind of siloed projects that all have communication and cross-functional teams, um, but you know, mostly try to focus on one product or one part of the, the code or the interface at a time. And I think if you're doing something like that, uh, separating your application into components makes a lot of sense. Splitting your application up into different APIs on the back end makes sense. And having a few <coughs> general 
components to kind of link everything together, you know, like the user authentication or maybe like the recommendation system um, or some way to, you know, create new playlists from anywhere in the, uh, in the application. You know, these things that are kind of overarching missions of the, of the web application, you know, should, should be present everywhere and, and can be linked to from anywhere. But for the most part, you want to keep things separate and componentized. And I feel like for those types of applications, sure, absolutely go ahead, but make sure you have enough funding or you have some plan to get acquired because it's gonna take a lot more time <coughs> to get to the point where you have a functional product that is valuable and visible and you know addictive for your users, addictive enough that not only are you gonna be able to get enough users, but then <laughs> on top of that, you're gonna be able to get enough advertising dollars, right? Because those, those types of apps Usually, I mean, Spotify is, I guess, an exception, although I think they, they have been losing money uh, every quarter. So maybe they aren't an exception, right? But, but um, those types of apps require a large user base, usually a lot of attention, and then they use that attention and they use that data and the, the analytics and, and either sell it, like Facebook, right? They, they sell some data and some analytics products. Um, or they sell advertising, right? They just sell, sell uh, the eyeballs over their viewers. But I think there's a lot of ways of scaling at that point, right? Once you reach a large enough audience, a large enough network, you can kind of use that network or use that audience uh, to do or accomplish different things in your company, right? Because at, at that point, it's a different beast. You know, you're not just working with a few hundred individuals across the globe, you're interacting with, um, you know, something that's powerful, something that's a force to be, to be reckoned with. Um, and other people are going to realize that and also want to use your, your giant network for their own goals, right? Which makes it, you know, compelling for you and for them, especially if they're not nefarious, right? If they don't have nefarious interests, if they just, you know, want to get people to use their, their toothpaste, you know, um, doing an, a single advertising campaign with a huge network is a lot better than, you know, with a few hundred people. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> advertising aside and talking about these big, big companies aside, I think if you're building your average kind of application, right? I'm talking about anything from tax software to, uh, you know, maybe some kind of visual page builder software um, or even some other kind of design software, some kind of personal productivity tool or some kind of uh, dashboard for your company, for, for, uh, for other companies, or some kind of reports generation, or even like an analytics you know, uh, suite. I think a lot of the times in those cases, it makes a lot more sense, especially when you're first starting out, when you're first um, seeing if you can get that product market fit, it makes a lot more sense to use your expertise to build a strong, strong backend and uh, leave the front end with, you know, a few sprinkles of uh, advanced functionality, right? So maybe around your core product, your core page, your core report, you have some advanced JavaScript interactions. And maybe even that you eventually convert into a Vue.js app or a React app. <laughs> but 
at least at first when you know you're trying to uh, implement a new settings page or a new profile page for your users and that page is visited by maybe one percent of your <laughs> of your users and isn't really important to them just sticking up a simple form with with a few text inputs is gonna be is gonna save you so much time right it's gonna that's gonna be a day of time uh, instead of having to add a front-end framework there having to add routing there having to you know make sure the code splitting is working correctly making sure there, there are no you know visual glitches making sure you have your custom drop down component and your custom button component and your custom you know radio button component all implemented um, you know it's just not worth it right that's going to take you know maybe it's going to take a day right maybe it's going to take a day at first but then down the line you got a bug report from QA uh, down the line some other you know some unrelated or seemingly un unrelated component was updated and it affects some component on your settings page or you need to update your entire front-end library and now you know your settings page <laughs> is affected by that change also because you implemented using a front-end framework. Now all of a sudden we're talking about multiples of days, right? We're talking about maybe maybe a week total, right? Or two weeks total over the period of a year that you're investing into the settings page that literally 1% of your users even care about, right? So to not have to do things twice on that page, to just do them on the backend, on the backend template once in one place, do the validation once in the controller in one place, do the data modeling once in one place on the backend, you know, near the database, do the data storage, you know, once in one place, do the routing at once in one place, that's going to save you so much time and you're going to be able to focus on the core product a lot more. Um, <coughs> And so now we come to this idea, which I am writing a blog post about, which is that, uh, and it's pretty much what I've been stating this whole time, uh, if you are a small team, using a front-end framework is equivalent to premature optimization, right? Something you never want to do as a developer who's trying to work quickly, trying to work in a lean manner, trying to get a product out the door and see if people even like it. Um, it's counter to all of that. It's a premature optimization. You're trying to make something perfect before you make it good, before you make it usable, before you just make it good enough, right? And that premature optimization is a little bit tricky. It's actually really tricky. Because let's say you start building your front end for your application and you're working on that core reports page, right? You're building a new analytics product and you're working on that front page and you build it out with Vue.js or you build it out with React and you even decide that <laughs> this front end library that you know, handles reports and generates charts automatically, it isn't quite good enough, right? So you have to you have to tweak it a little bit. You have to make it look a little bit nicer, customize the colors, maybe even fork the code, the underlying code, and add a few of your own transitions, your own animations, your own styles, right? And you make this report page look really, really nice, right? And then you try using it. 
and you realize that even though it feels really, really good to use, right? Even though you're pretty satisfied with it, it doesn't quite compete on the same level as Google Analytics or on you know, some other big company's analytics product, right? It doesn't quite feel the same as maybe Twitter Analytics or you know, the YouTube Analytics product or um, I don't know what all the SEO you know, the search engine optimization companies uh, use for like uh, uh, laying out graphs and charts or the email automation companies. I'm sure there's a lot out there who are at the top of their game who implement remarkably smooth, silky, beautiful charts and graphs and report pages, right? Uh, like Stripe, right? Stripe, for example, right? If you're competing with Stripe and you go and you use your product that you spent, you spent countless hours, right? Weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe even months and months optimizing this report page to just make it look absolutely beautiful. And then you bring up the Stripe dashboard or you bring up the Google Analytics dashboard and you realize yours falls short just a little bit. There's this tiny missing piece where, where maybe your page loads a little bit uh, it takes a little bit longer to load. Or maybe, you know, they have this cool little interaction with their button where the chart transitions from one type of chart to another and the SVG shapes just morph just perfectly. Or, um, you know, maybe the, uh, when a number goes up, you know, not only does it turn green, but it bounces up and down a little bit. Um, or maybe when you go to the edit menu, Instead of just doing a simple page transition, the numbers slide into the edit areas, right? And I'm not saying, you know, these are all things you need or feel or will feel like you need to do, but they'll, they'll feel like there's something missing. Like there's this little gap, this little gap in your brain <laughs> that just pokes at you, that says you're almost there. <laughs> And it's the worst feeling because you know you've used applications like the one you're building before, and you know you've put in a lot of effort to learn how to build those types of applications. But there's a small, small difference between what you've made and what the companies you admire have made. And as a solo founder, or maybe a, a co-founder, Right? Maybe you only have two or three people on your team. You don't have a lot of engineering resources to invest in these product, product, projects. But you put your heart and soul into this and it still doesn't quite match up. So you, you sit down again. Maybe you talk with users briefly before you sit down again and they suggest a few things and you add those, those new features. But most of your effort goes into making your application perfect, making it sing making it load in under a second, making all of those charts and graphs animate perfectly. Um, at that point, you've fallen into the trap, in my understanding, of having an, uh, I'm gonna pronounce this wrong, <laughs> of having an asymptotic goal. So an asymptote is uh, like a line on a graph that gradually approaches another line, but never reaches it, right? It's, it's what every exponential graph looks like, right? It, it goes up and up and up to the right, but it never, it never quite touches that, 
that line of linear growth, right? Because it's, it's just curving up and up and up. And I think an asymptotic goal is something like perfection, right? So this could be with any type of task or any type of industry or any type of goal. Um, if you're trying to reach perfection, uh, you're always gonna fall short and you're gonna wear yourself down and you're gonna burn out because um, even, even if you're really good, you're never quite perfect if you're, if you're always focused on you know, this idea of perfection. You're always gonna fall just behind and you're always gonna get close but not quite there. And I think that is the, the mystery <laughs> and the allure of front-end frameworks is that they get you really, really close to having an application that feels like a Google or a Facebook or a Twitter or a Stripe or a, a really well put together thousand engineering team product, right? <laughs> These guys have engineers working on custom compilers and offline storage and web workers behind the scenes that are optimizing every piece of front-end code and you're on a single person <laughs> you know product team trying to design and develop this beautiful page and you're using this modern front-end framework with a modern stack and you're able to get really close but far enough away that it feels like you just need to put in a little bit more effort and so instead of focusing on your users Instead of focusing on the um, ecosystem of your product and how one tool and another tool that are very simple tools can work together to create a workflow that is better than anything else that's out there. Instead of focusing on those few different small simple tools that can work together. You know, and this is similar to Basecamp's philosophy, right? Of, kind of do less and instead of having the, the eight features that every other product has, having the four right features that your product needs, right? If you spent the time of, that you spent setting up your front-end framework, instead you spent that interviewing users, um, if you spent the time uh, that you spent you know, optimizing that, that SVG icon and the, the, mer the, the, you know, transform effect that it has to like grow and pop out and look just like the Twitter like button. Um, if you spent that, you know, talking with just five more users or, you know, adding a, an incredibly important feature or not even a user requested feature, but taking the, the tableau of all the features people have requested and, and somehow after tireless nights of <laughs> dreaming about it and staying awake about it and thinking about how all of these users just aren't quite getting what they need, magically one day when you're, you're just sitting in the, uh, or you're, you're standing in the shower and you're taking your morning shower, it just comes to you, this very simple, intuitive, unique idea. And instead of it just passing through your head as a, as a moment's thought because you're distracted by how to get this button component to work, because you've been suffering, because you've been thinking about it for the past two or three weeks, because you've been spending this time with users for the past two, and three, two or three weeks, this insight matters more to you than anything else. 
in your life. <laughs> and you end up pursuing that and believing in that more than anything else. And you end up making it the main point of your entire product and your product design philosophy for the next five years. And for that reason, you're able to beat out Google in the same market and they shut down their competing product. You're able to outlast an intrepid startup that took on millions of dollars in funding because you had that belief, you knew it was right, you talked with the customers, and you were able to bootstrap your business uh, gradually because they knew you understand, because, because you explained it in a way that they understood, that made sense to them, because you talked to so many of them. That's what I'm talking about when I say chasing perfection, chasing this perfect idea of this perfect interface is a dream. <laughs> it, it doesn't exist. Google shoots for it. Facebook shoots for it. Twitter shoots for it. All these companies, they get close, right? And you go and you use their product or you use their, their newest landing page, right? You go to the new Stripe product landing page and you just marvel at how you could never create something like this, how their team must be so well organized and their design team must be communicating with their technology team so well and they must be hiring the best developers for $500 or $1,000 an hour and how you could never afford that. Instead of thinking about that, instead of talking about that, instead of staying up awake at night wondering how you're going to get that globe, that three-dimensional globe to rotate perfectly as the user scrolls with no lag whatsoever on mobile or desktop in the background of your newest landing page. Instead of thinking about a problem like that, what about thinking about your core product, the core value you're bringing to people, and about how you can build things in a way that makes sense to you, that fits with a vision that you've developed because you've struggled with that vision. Because instead of struggling with technology, you've been struggling with the, the pain points that your users have. And I think as a small startup, as a small company, that is the only answer. And I've heard it repeated over and over again, and I haven't listened. And I've been <laughs> seduced by one technical challenge after another. But the truth is, at the end of the day, the only way to create a beautiful product is to be confronted with the banality, <laughs> the banality of the idea that a technological solution to a social, societal, or motivational problem is the right type of solution. And never is, it almost never is. That button style, that, <laughs> that, that button backdrop to your material design button, <laughs> that that expands from the mouse click and, and light, lights up the button in just the right way that makes it feel like it's a, like you're dropping a little pebble into, into a, a pond, that's not gonna solve anyone's problems. Your users, most of them, who aren't designers, do not care if your button is uh, a material design button or not. If it's blue and it's rounded and it's clickable and it looks clickable, you're doing fine. <laughs> you don't need to worry about anything else. You're doing fine. 
And if your website is server rendered and it's a multi-page app and it's old school and you've built most of your components with jQuery, you are doing absolutely fine if you are, if you have customers, if you have paying customers. And I'd say it's even better for most users because when they link to your page, they know they're linking to the right page. It's not a front end route that you forgot to give a specific route. It's not a front end route that you're not rendering on the server. So when they paste the link in chat, it's, it's not showing up, you know, with a, with a proper preview. Uh, it's not something that, you know, you forgot to implement as a public resource because you were so focused on making the page look, look nice that you know, you forgot which, which URLs were accessible by the public and which weren't, or you didn't have time to implement advanced permissioning or intuitive permissioning because you were so focused configuring the front end routing library. I mean, it's all these tiny little things, these tiny little details, right? It's not like the user isn't confused by going to another page and being scrolled halfway down that page because your front-end library, <laughs> you know, like your front-end routing library bugged out for a second. Or when they click the back button, the modal disappears, but the page doesn't change. Or when they click the back button, the carousel image goes back to the previous carousel image, right? There's nothing like that because it's all server rendered. It's a traditional app. The URL matches what's on the page. It describes what's on the page. And most, most importantly, you get uh, a lot of stuff for free. You get code splitting pretty much for free, right? You get um, a uh, server rendered page pretty much for free. And you only have to implement all of these things like validation and user mo and like uh, data models and schemas. You only have to implement all those things once. Form handling. You only have to handle that on the back end, especially for a minimum, minimal viable uh, product, right? Just implement it on the, on the back end, show a flash message if there's an error. It's not ideal, right? Maybe one of the first things you do is, is fix that validation so it's on the front end, right? Duplicate that, that, right? So that users can, can log in easier and they don't have to retype their username and password, you know, every time the page refreshes. That's a good enhancement, but to have that you know, everywhere, right? Maybe, maybe you don't need that, right? Maybe when you're creating a new uh, product listing, you don't need to auto save the modal form and have it pop up on the next, you know, page because, um, you know, you, you have a separate page for that. And, uh, you know, the form data is auto-filled with the browser's normal features. Or even, you know, you add a single library that saves the, all of the form fields on all of your pages to local storage and reloads them whenever the page reloads, right? Something simple like that, instead of having to implement state, you know, in Redux or MobX or, you know, Vuex, having to implement state for every page and having to make sure every form, form field is perfectly stored. You know, maybe it's just a single plugin that's, you know, 10 kilobytes 
and you don't need to use all of these massive, massive libraries and figure out how everything fits together. And when your modal library, you know, doesn't work right, you don't have to, you know, like modify the source code and fork the source code and then never get an update again. Or you don't have to, you know, wait on a maintainer of a package with a hundred dependencies to update that single dependency, you know, that makes it so that your bundle size will be decreased by 60 kilobytes. You know, you don't have to keep up to date with the pre-alpha new version of the, the next version 3. Point, you know, a million of your next library because, um, you know, it fixes that one bug that, you know, was reported three years ago and, and they're just getting around to fixing because they had other more important priorities. Um, I feel like it's just, if you're a small team, if you're two or three people, you're bootstrapped, you're self-funded, you're just starting out, and you want to get a web application online, do not set an, a, how many minutes pronounce this again? Do not set an asymptotic goal. Do not set a goal that is going to look like it's gonna take weeks to do and will really take years because you need to build something today and you need to talk to users today and you need to see the pain that they're dealing with or the annoyance that they're dealing with or the frustration that they're dealing with and you have to take responsibility for that and you have to solve it and then you have to come back to them at their next milestone, at their next problem and you have to solve that too. And if you do that enough, you're gonna have people wanting to give you money because your product is so, so valuable to them. And it's not gonna be because your landing page looks like Stripe or your page transition is next level or your SVG animation is just perfect. And don't get me wrong, I think all of that stuff is important. I think if you've, if you've solved the core value proposition and you have money coming into you, or part of your core value proposition is that it's important that your app is nicely designed because you're building something for designers or you're building something for you know, someone, an audience that's really gonna appreciate that, then sure, go all in, right? If that, if that like button that animates just right, just like the Twitter like button, is really important and core to your design philosophy as a startup, you know, go with that, right? But as far as the front end framework goes, if you're not building the next uh, social network, if you're not building the next massively scalable consumer application, if you're not building with a team of, you know, a dozen developers, I don't think it's worth it. I think before you've found product market fit, it doesn't make sense to use a front-end framework in 90% of cases. And I'm not gonna stick by that number <laughs> because it's just an arbitrary number, but it's just something that I've come to appreciate over the last uh, decade of building web applications is that maybe, uh, maybe uh, over-engineering a solution doesn't always look like over-engineering a solution. Maybe, you know, doing what everyone else is doing and trying to get that, you know, that latest code and that latest uh, library into your product doesn't really make sense. You know, 
maybe when you're installing that, you know, new routing library, you know, the 3.0 routing library that's supposed to solve every issue. And, you know, it does, right? It solves all your issues. Maybe instead of thinking about, um, thinking about how it's going to be so awesome and how, you know, now that it's, it's implemented, it's never going to cause any issues in the, in the future. Maybe you're thinking about that library author's, you know, interest and motivation and if they're going to keep going and they're going to be working on a, a 3.1 version, a 3.2 version, if they're going to fix that security bug that comes up in six months quickly, if they're going to release a version 4 or a version 5, right? And these things are double-edged swords because on the one hand, they release a version 4 and boom, they've, they've solved your, your next problem, your newest group of problems, but they've also created a, a dependency graph in your application that you have no control over, right? Now you're installing, you know, instead of a 40 kilobyte view, uh, uh, render, uh, routing library, you're installing a, a 60 kilobyte rendering library. And maybe it has some dependency that, you know, has some issue that's a security issue that's discovered, you know, a month later. Or maybe it requires you to update five other plugins. And then updating that, uh, some other plugin causes some other issue for you because it's incompatible with another plugin, right? So instead of going down this rabbit hole of a bunch of lightly interconnected libraries that all have slightly varying dependencies and have way too much power, right? Way too much power. Like you want a, a routing library, you, do, you don't want like a, the kitchen sink, but they ship the kitchen sink to you because someone needed it, someone requested it. And so you have this incredibly powerful library that you don't need 80% of the features for, but you're causing your bundle to be 50% larger because you're loading all of these libraries, all of these uh, giant libraries that you don't use 80% of their features of, and your users are suffering because their time to load the first page load is taking an extra five seconds and an extra 10 seconds on mobile. And you say, ah, well, you know, it works for me. It works on my 4G network. But, you know, someone in another part of the world, in China or Russia or India or Europe, who could have been your biggest fan, who could have been your next market, your next big customer, you know, they're on the train on their mobile phone and maybe in this, that area, their internet isn't as good and your page doesn't even load. So you never even get a chance to sell to them. I think that's, if you want to be a global company and you want to have real customers who really care, those are the, the kind of things you want to worry about. Okay, well, I am <laughs> approaching the maximum time for a podcast. I got one minute left. So that's all I'm going to say for now. If you're a small startup, mind the gap. Because there's a big gap between what you think an application should be and what an application that's minimally useful is. And aim for that second one. Okay, signing out. Have fun building web, web apps badly. Until next time, bye.